titled, An Account to Give. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9, so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, find your way to Luke chapter 9, and we'll join in there here in just a little bit. But first, I thought it might be good for us to pause for a moment and commemorate the occasion. It is, of course, Super Bowl Sunday. And as we look ahead to the big game this evening... I thought I'd share with you a few church football parallels that I found online, all right? So, did you know that the language that's used so often in football can actually be applied to some of the things that we do here in church? There are some parallels for the terms that you might use when you're watching a football game or when you're calling a play or when you're actually examining the pieces of the field or how the team works that you could use to describe the things that we do here as a church. Let me give you an example. For example, we we talk about the word trap, a particular type of play where uh, a defensive individual is trapped by uh, an individual who's blocking for the runner. But a trap in a church context would be when your family sits on the center of a long row and then two families sit on either side of you before the service begins. All right, there's your trap in the church sense. Or you might have heard in football of a draw play. Well, a draw play in church is what many children and still a few adults do with the bulletin during the worship service. All right. Any of you doing a draw play today? Nobody wants to show it off. Hold on, let's see, see at least one in the back. What about backfield in motion? That's a flag that you would get if you were playing football. Well, for the church, that would be making a trip to the back of the worship center during the service to go to the restroom or to the water fountain. And I know of a few of you who we've talked about this, and you silently referee those folks. So I know... I know how that goes. Or you might talk about halftime. Now, for some churches, halftime is the time between Sunday school and the morning worship service when some people just silently slip out the door. But for New Vision, I'd say halftime is when Pastor Jeremy gets to point number four out of his eight points for the day. And you know that you've made it halfway there. Or you might have heard of instant replay, which has gained a lot of popularity. Well, in a, in a church context, instant replay is when the pastor loses his place in his notes and says the same thing more than one time in a row. Or the two-minute warning. The two-minute warning is when the pastor says the words, and finally, and you start to hear that rattle of everybody else's Bibles around you closing at one time. You, you hear of overtime going into now what is called sudden death in the NFL. Well, sudden death is what happens to the attention span of some congregations if the preacher goes overtime. Now, for, for a guy like me and for a church like you who's used to this expositional sort of preaching, I would say that sudden death is more like what most of you would look like if I ended at 12 o'clock one Sunday. Because you would all pass out from amazement. Or you might have heard the term quarterback sneak. Well, in a church context, that's when individuals from the back quarter of the congregation quietly sneak out during the invitation. 
And then there's an end run. This is what you do when you need to get out of church quick. So you hurry out and you try not to make eye contact with anybody that you know once the service is over. There is something known as a flex defense. In a church context, that is the ability to allow absolutely nothing said during the sermon to affect your life. And that one and this next one are really a little more somber, but a bench warmer would be someone who comes to the service, but who does not sing or pray or work or apparently do anything other than warming up a church chair. And as I've mentioned, those last couple of parallels are a little bit more somber, but I'm afraid we'd be fooling ourselves if we did not acknowledge that most of our churches, including this church, includes individuals who are gathering together to warm the bench. There's nothing that anyone can say to them to change their habits. There's no encouragement that's going to get them in the game of doing God's work. But in today's passage, we're going to see so clearly that God's design for the game of life is not to amass a team of bench warmers. He is building a victorious team. He is building a victorious kingdom. And he calls for those who are members of that kingdom to join in his building efforts. And so I want all of us, this is myself included, to pause for a moment, to drop our flex defenses, and to open our hearts to the instruction of God's Word. And what we're going to find in the Word today is an example of individuals who have an account to give. Some of the folks we'll encounter in today's passage give an account to others of what God has done in their lives as they've interacted with Christ. And then we'll encounter some who ultimately must give an account with what they've done with that message of the good news. What have they done with this gospel? Have they received this good news of the kingdom? Or have they refused to yield a kingdom of their own? What have they done in the sense of if they have received that good news, taking that good news and living a life on mission for God? Because ultimately, all of us will be called on to give an account, as we'll see in this passage and then in this passage that we're tying in as well today. All of us will give an account of what we've done with the good news of the gospel. So above all else, I want to urge you to take these words of Scripture to heart and to live to give an account. Let's look into God's Word, starting in Luke chapter 9, verse 1. If you're able, let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's Word. Luke 9, verse 1. We read, And he, that is Jesus, called the twelve together. And gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, 
nor money. And do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going through the villages, preaching the gospel, and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. Here ends the reading of God's word for this morning. You may now be seated. As Luke chapter 9 starts out, we have just a couple of related happenings that Luke seems to tie together for us here. One is Jesus' sending out of his disciples. He sends out these men that he has called, these men who have been in ministry, intense ministry training, intense preparation for this objective in their time with him. And he, he gives them power. He gives them authority. He gives them what they need to go out and do this work that he's called them to do. But weaved in the midst of that is the fact that we encounter Herod, who is this king who has really pursued a kingdom of one. And in the midst of that, he has done some things, including killing our famed prophet that we've looked at so much as we've been through the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist. Herod had him imprisoned and ultimately brought about his death as he was beheaded at Herod's command. And the buzz starts to come up in the community around that John the Baptist is risen from the dead. Everybody hears about what Jesus' 12 disciples are doing as they go from town to town and carry about this ministry. And it brings up questions of those who are living in that area. They want to know, who is this man? They're all speculating about who he could be. And Herod finds himself in deep paranoia that perhaps he's ended up on the wrong side of eternity. And here's Jesus sending his disciples out into the area where they were most familiar. Ultimately, what we've seen in the Gospel of Luke so far in Jesus' adult ministry, he has spent the majority of that ministry in the northern area of Israel, which is known as Galilee. He has been there along the Sea of Galilee, as we've talked about that sea many times. And he spent the majority of that time in cities such as Capernaum, which we would describe as kind of the headquarters of Jesus' ministry up on the north side of Israel in Galilee. It's where he spends the bulk of the, the beginning part of his ministry. But here in a few moments, we're going we're to see 
really, as we read further and as we go into the coming weeks in Luke chapter 9, we'll see that Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem. And he sets his objective on going to that famed holy city, the holiest of cities in Israel, the holiest of cities in the world, in fact. There are other religions that would point to this city, the major religions of the world. See, this one city as the holiest of cities. And Jesus sets about his task of going to that city here in a few moments. But before he goes, he sends his disciples out into the villages, into the homes that are surrounding the area where they have been so involved for so long. In fact, this is the place where these disciples have been called from. This is their hometown. This is their backyard. And Jesus is about to send his disciples into the place where they are most familiar. Why would we say that? Well, ultimately, when we get to the end of this passage, they come back to Jesus and they give an account to him of all that has happened. They give an account in this city called Bethsaida, which happens to be on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is about six miles east of Capernaum. So we're talking about the same area where Jesus and his disciples have been camped out for quite some time, their own backyard. And we see in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 6, Matthew gives us an account of this exact same thing. And we find that the 12 were sent out, not to the Samaritans. Jesus said, don't go among the Samaritans. They were sent out not to the Gentiles. Jesus said, don't go to those who are not Israelites. No, Jesus tells his people to go to the sheep of Israel only. This is the safest of all places for them to minister. This is their hometown. This is individual discipleship training from the master himself, starting at the easiest level on the disciples' own home front. And why would the disciples not minister on their home front? Or maybe a better question we should ask is, why do we not minister on our own home front? Why do we not go to the, to the cultures and to the people that we know first? Why not go where there is no barrier of language, where there are no customs that we must learn, where everybody knows your name? Why don't we go there first? Mother Teresa passed away in 1997, but as a nun, she gained global recognition for her ministry to the poorest of the poor in India and in over 100 countries. In 1979, she was the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, and her philosophy as ministry was really quite simple. She said these words, help one person at a time and always start with the person nearest to you. That's a pretty simple strategy, is it not? That's the sort of strategy that Jesus and his disciples are living out here. It's the sort of strategy, my friends, that, that any of us can take as we go on a day-by-day -day basis interacting with those we know, those who are in our familiar context, those that we don't have any communications barriers with, those who are in our families, those who are among our friends, those whom we know best should be the ones that we begin this effort of sharing the good news with. And in a few weeks, we'll find that in Luke chapter 10, 
Jesus once again sends out this delegation to proclaim the gospel. But in Luke chapter 10, as, as Luke 10, 1 starts off, we find that Jesus sends out a group of 70 individuals, and now he's sending them not to this northern area of Galilee, but then he sends them on to the cities and towns to which he himself would go. So he sends them to prepare the way for him, 70 in all. Don't get these two accounts crossed up. But ultimately, Jesus will be soon on his way to Jerusalem. And he is deploying his people to change the world. One person, one city, one country at a time. And we find that the 12 disciples are men who live to give an account. And likewise, I want to compel all of you who are here today to live to give an account. Let's look at three ways we should live to give an account that are found in these verses. First of all, live to give an account of how the king has come. Live to give an account of how the king has come. As Jesus calls the twelve together, the work that he has for them to do at this point in their Christian growth is so clear. In verse 2, we read that he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. They are to go out. That's their job, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. They are to go out and to minister in word and in deed. And my friends, these two should always go together. Now, there may be contexts where we encounter someone that we do not have time to do good deeds for. Maybe it's passing someone in public transit that you know you're never going to encounter again. I'm not saying that you got to say, oh, well, let's set up a ministry shop and let me follow you around and do things for you until I have a chance to share the gospel. No. But what I am saying is that we should never subvert the, the preaching of the good news with our unwillingness to help people who have real physical needs. And that's what Jesus enables his disciples to do here. He enables them to heal, and they go and they heal. And as they bring healing, they gain a platform for the preaching of the gospel. And we, my friends as well, will gain a platform for the hearing of the gospel when we have a real heart of compassion that looks to those around us and says, how can I be an influence to help others with the love of Christ, thereby paving the way to share the good news of Christ? And by the way, this proclaiming of the kingdom in verse 2 is fulfilled as the disciples begin going through the, through the villages and, and doing what is described in verse 6 as preaching the gospel. So I just want you to know that these two are the same thing. When we're talking about proclaiming the kingdom and we're talking about preaching the gospel, these two are referred to with interchangeable phrases here in Luke's dialogue. Okay, So you should know that they're simply going about and preaching the good news of the gospel. We're simply talking about the disciples' call to preach the good news that the king has come to earth to establish his rule over his subjects' lives. That's what we're talking about here. This kingdom does not refer to a city or to a nation that is protected by walls at this time. This kingdom refers to the authority to rule and the exercise of that rule over the hearts and the lives of the people that God has created and now invites back to peace with him 
through Christ. And from this very time when Jesus first set aside 12 men to be with him, he had this mission in store for them. He had this intent for them. He had called them to be with him so that they could prepare for this very ministry. That's why we read in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. And he went up to the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. And verse 14 says, and he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have the authority to cast out demons. You see, Jesus has found the men that he wants to use. And he has formed those men. If you think through the vision that we have as a body, he has found them and that they are gathered together with him. He has formed them in the sense that they've heard his teaching. If you remember when Jesus first came down from the mountain, we looked in Luke chapter 6 at how he preached this sermon known as the Sermon on the Plain. And we titled kind of a series on that sermon, Discipleship 101. Because there from the very beginning of Jesus' calling of these men, he's preparing them for this very work. He's preparing them to follow him. And they are fired in the sense that they are committed. They are ultimately bound up with the work that he does as they go from place to place and find that he has all power, all authority, and they are dedicated to his cause. And now the time has come for these men to be filled. Now the time has come for these men to not just accompany Jesus, but to find their own purpose, to be fulfilled in the sense that they know where they are to go. They know what their mission is. They are going to now get involved in ministry on their own. This is all that Jesus has been preparing them to do. And he will continue to prepare them. But this is the first stage. They step into the backyard And as they find what it's like to get out and do what they've seen Jesus doing. And Jesus empowers these men in verse 1 with power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. That's the very thing they've been watching Jesus do. We've gone through these, at the end of Luke chapter 8, we went through these four sequential miracles where we saw Jesus exercising his power earlier in luke if you were to look back at luke chapter 8 verse 1 you would find that jesus began going around from one city and village to another proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of god and luke records there in luke chapter 8 verse 1 that the 12 were with him you see jesus is doing the very thing with his disciples in luke chapter 8 verse 1 that then now in luke chapter 9 verse 1 he calls his disciples to do he's shown them by his own example and, and they are learning here from what they've seen with Jesus, that they've been in tow with him in ministry. But I think it's interesting to know here, and, it, and it's interesting for us to understand that Jesus' design was not to form a small group of really well-trained men who never launched out into ministry on their own. His design from the very start was to send them out. His design was that they would preach. His design was that they would heal, that they would drive out demons. In summary, his design was that they would go. To heal diseases, my friends, you must go where the diseased are. And Jesus 
had designed for these men to go to drive out demons. You must go to some pretty scary places where demonic influence maybe is evident. And again, Jesus' design is for his people to go. And overall, this passage is a reminder that Jesus' primary objective is not to build a social club. His primary objective is to meet real needs for real people outside of the circle of those who are a part of his training. His ultimate objective is to proclaim a kingdom and to perform a healing, an everlasting sort of healing. And his purpose for these men was that they would go and they would give an account of how the kingdom had come and how that kingdom had intersected with their lives and how that kingdom had brought for them a hope for all of eternity. His purpose was that they would preach the gospel. And my friends, I think when we look at a passage like this, what we've got to acknowledge is that we too have a command to go. And we too have an accountability that we must evaluate. Are we going? Are we taking this message to those who need to hear it? Or are we just kind of building up a nice social club, a nice gathering where we come together and we have great training, but we never put any of that into use? And I got to tell you, this passage is convicting to me. Because I don't know about you, but when I read this, I think I need to be going. I need to be finding those openings, those opportunities, those avenues to share this good news beyond the local gathering. And my friends, you must know that Jesus' purpose is for those whom he calls to himself to go. If you've been saved, it is his purpose for you to equip you to share the good news with others that the king has come. That's why we read in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, before he ascended, Jesus came and spoke to his disciples. He's speaking to us in these verses, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or read again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, the backyard, in Judea, in the broader country, in Samaria, the country surrounding, even to the remotest parts of the earth. My friends, this is the same training plan that we are called to enter into that we find here in this passage. Jesus has designed for us to go. He has planned for us to be equipped to give an account to others of what the king has done and how the king has come for them. And that's a daunting task, is it not? I mean, I don't think anybody jumps up and says, I'm excited about going out and talking to people I don't know about Jesus, right? It's a, it's a daunting task. But let me say this, it's no more daunting for us than it was for those first disciples. In fact, Jesus puts some pretty hefty limitations on those disciples as they go. 
Because as they go, Jesus says in verse 3 here, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. What's going on here? Jesus is sending his disciples out among the diseased to heal them. I don't know about you, but when I'm around the diseased, I want a change of clothes. When, when I travel to some ungodly places, I want a weapon to defend myself. But Jesus tells these disciples, don't take a tunic with you. Don't take your staff with you. I want money when I go to foreign places to provide for myself. But Jesus tells his disciples, don't take any of that stuff. Now we should pause here to to remark that this is not a normative thing. Jesus doesn't say if you ever engage in missions, if you ever go to evangelism in your backyard, don't take, you know, a change of clothes with you or don't don't take uh, any money with you, don't take any form of protection with you. Jesus is not saying these things as a normative for all time. In fact, we find later on in Luke that Jesus changes these stipulations as the persecution for his disciples is ratcheted up. And they then go out in the face of increased persecution. But here the disciples were in the early stages of their own individual ministries. And I believe that Jesus sent them out without any of these things on this occasion so that he could teach them an important lesson that they needed to learn for later on in their ministry. Because when you go with nothing... Do you know what you have to depend on God to provide? Everything. Absolutely. When you go with nothing, you have to depend on God to provide everything. And Jesus is showing his disciples here that even when they go with nothing else to their name, even when they don't have a change of clothes or food or money, he provides all that they need. The worker is worthy of his support. And God takes care of his own. If we have nothing more than his power and his authority to do ministry, then my friends, we have over and abundant all that we will ever need. So don't tell me that you don't have what you need to live on mission for him. Because these disciples have nothing in this passage. And yet they come back and they give an account of great success of what the gospel has done in their midst. And Jesus even tells the disciples not to swap houses when they're carrying out their work. That's interesting. He tells them in verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. Now that's, that's pretty different from what most Christians here in the South do, is it not? I mean, the way we conduct our ministry here in the South it's not one where we tend to camp out in one house until we leave the city. There are other houses around, right? With exciting things going on. You know, this place used to be pretty cool, but look at what's going on over there now, right? Look, look at the bright, flashy thing happening at that other house down the road. And Jesus doesn't tell his disciples here, keep looking for the next big thing. 
He tells them, settle down and do the ministry and focus on the kingdom and ensure that is your priority. Not finding the next comfortable place. Not finding the next place that's really going to provide your latest felt needs. He says, buckle down, be all about the kingdom, and make this thing known. And that's what his disciples do. And when you take nothing and you seek to acquire nothing, the focus stays off of you. It doesn't matter who has the most money or who found the best place or who has the best sense of fashion. All that matters is the king who has appeared and the kingdom that he is inviting others to join. And my friends, if the disciples could preach the good news with none of these things, then surely we can preach the good news with the abundance of things that God has granted for us. Think of all the things we have that they did not have on this first mission trip. We have Bibles galore. I bet I probably got 20 Bibles in my house of one form or another. These early disciples didn't even have the degree of revelation that we had. They didn't know about Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection. They were focusing purely on what they knew about him, and they were still confused about what they did know about him from their time here on earth. But my friends, we have been given such a wonderful revelation from God to know the things that he has accomplished. And we have not just a staff to kind of lean on as we're walking around. I mean, we've got nice cars, we've got roads, there are airplanes and boats and so many nice traveling vessels that could take us to where we want to go. All across our world, there are hotels, there are lodging places, there are restaurants, there are supermarkets, there are places that await the use of our private funds that we could be employing in the use of gospel work. And if the disciples, my friends, could accomplish so much with so little, then surely we can take the abundance that we've been granted and make this good news known. And do you know what the church needs in our day? We need men and women who won't just hang around and listen, but who will pick up their tools and get to work. We don't just need bench warmers. We need those who are living as though they are preparing to give an account. What would be more effective if if, if everyone just gathered at one place in town one day of the week to hear the good news or if the power of the gospel would catch a flame and spread to the world because of that group? My friends, it's so obvious how God has designed a better way than we tend to function in our churches. And what do these disciples have that you and I don't? If you're in Christ, it's not a commission. They were commissioned, you are commissioned. You have that. You're not lacking a powerful and authoritative word like they had either. You have that. The only thing that any of us might be lacking must be either courage or coordination or compassion. Any hope that we might have as a body, that we would strive forward as the representatives of Christ in this gospel message must be found in the fact that we should rally around one another to provide those very 
things. We should rally around one another to ensure that each person has the courage. Each person has the coordination. Each person has the compassion. As we study God's word, as we find what Christ has instructed us, surely these things, my friends, will fill our hearts and we can find the courage and the coordination and the compassion to go and be his hands and feet proclaiming the good news and doing both in word and in deed what Christ has called us to do. So live to give an account of how the king has come. That's the first way you should live to give an account that I see in these verses. Here's the second. I chose an odd number today so you wouldn't know when halftime was. Second, live to give an account of how you've ceded your control. Verse 7 picks up with the account of King Herod. Let me identify which Herod we're talking about, by the way. After Herod the Great died, his son Herod Antipas became the ruler of about a third of his father's kingdom, splitting that kingdom with his two brothers. All right? One of those brothers was known as Philip, who we'll talk about here in just a moment. But he ruled from his father's death in around 4 B.C. until around A.D. 39. So Herod ruled Galilee and Perea for all of our Lord's adult lifetime. Okay? This is the Herod that we encounter when Jesus is talking to a Herod, when Jesus encounters Herod later on, as he's on his path to crucifixion, that's the Herod we're talking about, all right? And this Herod had made a really foolish decision. So John the Baptist, as we talked about here before, had a very popular ministry. I mean, people were going all around from all the cities, all the countryside around, and they were going down into the desert to hear John preach this message of repentance, this message to prepare the way for the Lord. Well, as it turns out, I, I mentioned that Herod was splitting his father, Herod the Great's kingdom. Herod Antipas sharing his father's kingdom with, with two of his brothers. One of those names is Philip. Well, Philip had a wife named Herodias that Herod just happened to get his eye on. And, and actually, Herodias came and, and the, the gospel accounts tell us that John the Baptist ultimately found himself at odds with Herod because he spoke out against Herod Antipas for having his brother's wife. All right? So there's a lot of mixed up, messed up, Jerry Springer sort of stuff happening in Herod's family. Okay? Just know that. And John the Baptist has called him out on all of that mess. Well, Herod's pretty upset about John the Baptist calling him out, so he throws him in prison. But he really doesn't want to execute John the Baptist, because he kind of likes to hear him preach. We read in Mark, Mark's gospel. He likes to hear him preach, but he doesn't respond to that preaching. Uh, but he also knows that John the Baptist is just very popular with the people of that country. And so he doesn't want to become, you know, the bad guy who killed the popular person for all the country. So he keeps him in prison until one day at this party that Herod is having for some friends of his Herodias' daughter dances in some way that is so pleasing for Herod that he makes this foolish vow that you tell me anything you want and it shall be yours. Well, Herodias' daughter consults with her mother Herodias and Herodias says, tell Herod that you want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so that's what happens. She tells Herod and Herod, ultimately, because he can't look like a fool in front of the guests who are there at his party, orders that John the Baptist is executed, his head is cut off, and it is brought to Herodias and her daughter on a platter. And here, as, as John the Baptist 
has been executed as the gospel is going out through the 12 disciples. This rumbling starts, starts to happen about what on earth God is doing. And part of that rumbling has to do with people saying, well, it looks like John the Baptist is back. It looks like he has been raised from the dead. And Herod is mortified to think about this. In fact, Luke's record in verse 7 records that he was greatly perplexed. That's a translation of a word that's rarely used in Greek in the New Testament, but that word literally means to be entirely at a loss. You see, when Herod hears about what the disciples are doing in the name of Jesus, he is shaken to his very core. And there's one particular question which occupies his mind in verse 9. Who is this man about whom I hear such things? You see, Herod is asking a most important question. He's asking who Jesus is. He's asking the question ultimately because the disciples have been busy about Jesus' work. And that just causes me to wonder for him. I mean, Herod at the top of the government in his area is asking about Jesus because of what these lowly disciples have been doing on their first mission trip. And it just makes me wonder, who is asking, who is this Jesus because of my work? Who is asking, who is this Jesus because of your work, Christians? Even if the answer to this question is wrongly answered by those who would refuse Jesus as Lord, our faithfulness to Christ's work should be causing the individuals that we encounter to have to deal with this question. The masses of humanity around us already stand condemned apart from Christ. And they need to ask this question. They need to have this burden on their hearts. And good news is only good news if it reaches the ears of those who need to hear it. And so I hope that all of our efforts to make Christ known are causing others to ask this most important question. And in this passage, we find that much like in our day, everyone surrounding Herod has a theory about who Jesus is. In verses 7 and 8, we find that it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. You see, everybody's got an idea about who Jesus is. All these theories are thrown about, and all these theories have something in common. They're all religious theories. Every one of these theories is certain that Jesus is a prophet of some sort. Either John the Baptist, that prophet, the last of the Old Testament prophets, who's come back from the dead, or some prophet from the Old Testament. All of these theories are likewise supernatural. I mean, each one of these suggestions would either require God to interact by providing a resurrection in the case of John the Baptist or a prophet of old or the miraculous turn of Elijah, who is another prophet that is thrown out there, who was raptured to be with God and was prophesied to return before the Messiah. They all believe that ultimately there's something supernatural, something religious that's happening. But also these theories all have another thing in common. They're all dead wrong. They're all wrong about who this one is. None of them sufficiently explains Jesus as the one to whom we must give our lives. And you know it's rare that crowds 
answer an important question correctly in unison. Crowds are almost always divided and almost always wrong. And I just want to say, if you're putting your hope in what the crowd thinks is right, you're probably hoping in something that won't amount to anything. And here's the chief problem in our day. Our world likes to give Jesus props for his abilities to teach, but not for his abilities to command. People want a good religious teacher who doesn't require anything of them. But that's not Jesus' ministry or the ministry of his disciples. He calls for a response. And we, too, my friends, in our gospel ministry must call for a response. Mark's gospel records the response of these disciples as they were going out and preaching this. The response that they were calling for people to make, they went out according to Mark chapter 6, verse 12, and preached that men should repent. Men should turn away from their sins. Men should yield their lives to the control of this Lord. Ultimately, that's the response they were calling for. That's the response we must call for. And here's what Herod was unwilling to relent. He wouldn't cede control of his own kingdom to the control of the only wise, only eternal king. And so Herod asks the right question, but he asks it for the wrong reason. He asks to resolve his confusion. He asks to resolve his paranoia, not to resolve his sin. And he fears what Jesus will do with his earthly kingdom. But he needs to be more concerned about what Jesus is going to do in this eternal kingdom that has now come. And this, my friends, is something that each of us must deal with. Do you want to be a king or do you want to be in the kingdom? Because those are your options. Do you want to be free to do as you please, what you please, when you please, where you please? Or do you want an eternal freedom that is free from guilt and shame? A freedom that only God can give, but to which he offers us in exchange for making his pleasure the very treasure of our lives. And Herod wants to see Jesus. In fact, Luke records that he used to like, as I mentioned, hearing John the Baptist preach. And he certainly probably wants to see Jesus for that very same reason. But that's the wrong reason. He wants an entertainer and not a king. And, and people all around us want a good teacher, but not a king. They want, they want someone who can save them and rescue them from despair, but they don't want someone who's going to command their lives from that point on. And yet Jesus is all these things together. You take him all or you take him none at all. He must be Lord of all or not Lord at all. And so Herod here gives a prime example of those who would have the dust of their own town shaking off the disciples' feet. That's, that's what Jesus commands the disciples to do. If they go into a town, people reject their message. He says, before you leave that city, shake the dust off of your feet. This was, a, this was a condemnation. This was calling individuals to account as you brush the very dust off of your own feet. They were essentially saying that the dust of this land is not worthy to go into the promised place that God is calling me to go into. And Jesus says elsewhere, 
about this very dust and these cities. He says, truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And here we've got Herod who keeps trying to see Jesus. Well, one day, you know, Herod would see Jesus. He would see Jesus on the way to the cross as Jesus appeared before him and Herod had an opportunity to speak to the need, but he cowered away just as he had in the life of John the Baptist. But, you know, beyond that, there would be another day when Herod would see, as all of those who are apart from Christ will see, Christ again, face to face at his great white throne judgment when those who are apart from him are cast away from him into this eternal suffering apart from him known as hell and ultimately herod must give an account he must give an account and he makes the wrong call but my friends i tell you do not make the wrong call ask the right question who is this one he is the savior he is the lord of all he is the one who has come to redeem you he is the one who has come to restore you he is the one who has come and shed his own blood in your place that you might be restored to god he comes and offers this to you freely by grace he offers that you might be saved through faith not because of anything that you've done on your own but because of his love for you and my friends he invites you into relationship with him that's who this is But don't have the response of Herod that says, I'm not bowing my kingdom of one to your eternal kingdom. No, my friends, yield it all to him and he will shepherd you into great things for all of eternity. So live to give an account of how you've ceded your control. That's the second way you should live to give an account. Here's the final one. Live to give an account of how you've cared for the king's commands. We read in verse 10, when the apostles returned, they gave an account. They give a very verbal account. They ultimately tell the story of all the things that have happened with them here and what they have done. And we read that taking them with him, Jesus withdrew with them to this city where we're going to encounter next week this feeding of a multitude, all right? But ultimately, the disciples come back from doing what Jesus has commanded them to do and they give an account. They tell the story. They, I can imagine. Can you just imagine what that would be like as the disciples have now carried out this first mission obligation and Jesus is now talking with them about that and they say, oh man, Lord, I really encountered this situation I didn't know how to deal with and he gives them some instructions. He said, well, I'll send you out again here in just a little while. Do this. Take this approach. Refine that approach a little bit. But did you know that we're all going to give an account hear these words of romans chapter 14 verses 7 to 12 this is paul writing right he's writing to christians and what did he what does he say starting in verse 7 he says for not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself for if we live we live for the lord or if we die we die for the lord therefore whether we live or die we are the lord's for to this end christ died and lived again so that he might be lord both of the dead and of the living but you how do you judge your brother or you again why do you regard your brother with contempt for we will all we will all a l l every one of us we will all stand before the judgment seat of god 
We read in verse 10. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. Verse 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. You see, my friends, there's an account that is coming for each one of us. Each one of us will give an account for how we've cared for the king's commands. And ultimately, my friends, you you must know that this is not how we earn our salvation. By grace you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. We're not talking about an account of, look, Jesus, how I earned my way to where you are. Because none of us could earn that. It's, It's impossible. But Paul does refer elsewhere to how each man's work shall be judged by fire. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't want my day of accounting to be a day with nothing but ashes. I want ultimately to give an account for something that matters as I work for his kingdom. When I'm called on to give an account of what I've done with Christ's good news and the salvation of my soul, I don't want all of what I've built to go up in flames. And just imagine that day, my friends, when you stand before Christ and you give him a description of what you've done with the power, with the authority that he's entrusted to you. Do you, on that day, only want to be able to show your own selfishness in what, how you wanted the perks of salvation without joining in the chain of salvation and obeying the Lord of salvation. Because my friends, Jesus commanded those first disciples in Matthew ten eight, the same thing that he commands to you and I now, which is this, freely you received, freely give. And so let us be a people of the word seeking to share as a part of this chain of the good news that God has granted to humanity. The good news that each of you who is in Christ must say someone connected that chain to me. Let us be a part in connecting that chain to others as we seek to bring glory to his name. After World War II, Americans returned from all parts of the world. That global, global exposure led Robert Woodruff who was president of Coca-Cola from 1923 to 1955, to succinctly state in his new vision, during my lifetime, I want every person in the world to taste Coca-Cola. And you know, I'd say that man came pretty close to realizing his objective. And you know what's so sad about that? He was dealing with soda pop. And yet, He puts us to shame who hold the greatest news that anyone could ever receive. And so let us contemplate, my friends, how we can make it our mission, how we can make it our objective to join in what Christ has called us to do as we go, as we live faithfully, as we live as those who will give an account. Would you pray with me? Father, your word challenges us so richly in areas that we need to give our attention to. Lord, we're so prone to rest on our laurels. We're so prone to find ourselves in a comfortable 
place, to find ourselves where good things are happening and to neglect the great things that you have called us to. But Father, on this day, I pray that you would equip us with courage. I pray that you would equip us with compassion. I pray that you would equip us with a coordination to do what you've called us to do. Oh Lord, may we, as a result of what your word is calling us to do, find ourselves in faithful obedience as we serve the king of all creation, the king who brings good news to bear. May we take this message and make it known, Lord, as a chain, as a part of drawing to yourself those whom you have called to be your own and father i don't know the heart i don't know the state i don't know the involvement of each person that's in this room but lord i sense conviction and father i pray that others who sense a similar conviction would respond in these moments maybe it's by coming with a prayer maybe it's by coming to say i want to find a way to get engaged i want to find a way to go would you help to god would you connect me with others who have this passion would you just show that there is a body that will rally around and pray for me and love me, encourage me. Or Lord, there may be others who are here who really just need to connect with this kingdom in such a way that they bow their own lives to say, let this king be my king. Let this savior be my savior. Let this Lord be my Lord. Lord, if that's the desire of any heart, if you would draw into yourself those who are your own in these moments, O Lord, We rejoice in all that you provide as we sing in these final moments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to share now in a time of invitation.